Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. This season of Ahali Conversations is supported by the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts. The Graham provides project-based grants to foster the development and exchange of diverse and challenging ideas about architecture and its role in the arts, culture and society. In this episode, we are in conversation with architect, writer and professor of architecture at Yale, Keller Easterling. Her books include Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space, Enduring Innocence, Global Architecture and its Political Masquerades. And her latest book is Medium Design, Knowing How to Work on the World, which we dedicate special attention to in this episode. Easterling also contributed to numerous architecture and design exhibitions, including Elements by Ram Colas in the Venice Architecture Biennale of 2014, and RV Human, the Istanbul Design Biennale curated by Beatrice Colomini and Mark Wigley. I think Easterling's project boils down to how architecture and design can actually intervene or contribute to the cultural change around social justice and ecological crisis through thinking about and knowing how to work the systems at play. So designing within interplay rather than the total compliance and submission on behalf of the architectural profession is what she seeks for. She redirects our attention to the spatial dimension of how things are arranged, be it politically, financially or socially. At the same time, especially with medium design, she goes back to what's at core of design activity and how actually a realignment with the planetary thinking that embraces the patchy and the partial can occur. Now, she doesn't exactly say this, but the whole conversation underlines how design is actually cultural production and has its own means of making sense, making knowledge and making worlds. As always, you'll find an extensive list of references that we cover in the episode notes, so make sure to check them out for further links. For the more visually oriented, we are sharing images of works that are mentioned in Instagram. So check us out at ahali.podcast. And with that, let me welcome Keller Easterly. Welcome, Keller Easterling. It's really great to have you. And thanks for sharing your time with us. So I've been following your work since Enduring Innocence. And while the underlying motives are somewhat consistent, there seems to be a shift in the most recent book. In work such as Enduring Innocence and Extra Statecraft, I was observing that you were focusing on the political realities of existing systems and maybe spatial products such as, let's say, serialized or mass-produced built environments like the special economic zones or other, let's say, artifacts and systems, which are weirdly but conveniently kept outside of architectural discourse or design discourse in general. Whereas with medium design, you seem to shift gears and to imagine or situate design within the entangled world that you have been reflecting on, which is a kind of the life world that we all share. So I want to start with like, how was that moment? Is this an accurate observation? Did you notice that shift or 
how was the kind of uh, move from, let's say, more investigation and observation towards more thinking about how we can kind of practice, maybe not the right word, but work on this world? Thank you for that question. For me, it doesn't look like a big shift. I felt that I was trying to do it all along in various ways. In, for instance, a book called Organization Space, I was trying to set out a series of sites, um, trying to rethink what constitute something like a site. And in Extra State Craft, I was trying to introduce some idea of interplay as an organ of design that should be as important as standards or master plans or other things like that. But I think you're right that medium design is trying to say, you know, we're we're bored just with reportage. And the whole purpose of all of those books is to put spatial evidence more in the center of an interdisciplinary conversation to have more authority in global decision making. And so in lectures and in studios and so on, I'm constantly giving examples none of which are sufficient or right, but examples that are there to exercise the mind and exercise the design imagination to kind of animate the world with its physical stuff, not just the anointed financial or digital abstractions in culture, trying to really put the heavy information of the world in the center. So this book is really just continuing to do that, but I understand exactly what you mean. It does seem to be more addressing designers, but designers in any discipline, um, not just in architecture. And again, trying to put spatial evidence and spatial practices in the center of an interdisciplinary uh, conversation. Yeah, and perhaps that spatial practice is not only the realm of architects as they want to believe so. <laughs> right, right. Which has been consistent in all your work, I think. But maybe let's try to unpack the title medium design as well, because I'm observing that you are not using medium in the, let's say, familiar connotations, such as how we use um, like in reference to media and stuff, but more about this ether that holds this entangled world together. And I guess like James Gibson is one of the people you are also referring to in the earlier parts of the book, where like he, I think in his ecological thinking, he, for example, gives the example of the air as a medium that we move through or breathe and that kind of affords our existence in a sense. So how would you describe medium in reference to how you frame it? Exactly. As you are saying, I'm using that word medium as not bound by its association with communication technology and really in a sense joining with my media theorist colleagues who are looking at that word medium and returning to its root medius meaning middle or milieu and also joining those media theorists who are thinking about elemental media the same way that Gibson was describing it as medium as air, water, earth, fire, the things in which other things, the, the sort of medium in which things are suspended, the gross medium. So I think there may have been some media theorists who, who might be looking at someone like me and thinking, you know, stay in your lane, <laughs> don't use this word. But I naively thought I was like linking arms uh, with them. And because there were, there is a kind of, in, for instance, a book by a very 
wonderful colleague, John Durham Peters, in his book, Marvel's Clouds, he's talking about um, how in, for media theorists, these extra ambitions to think beyond, um, you know, just communication technologies and so on, come with some fears, you know, uh, first of all, diluting the word medium. And then also, are we equipped? Have we been trained, you know, almost to say to, to deal with these other ambitions? And so my coming in with some medium thinking and spatial evidence was sort of hoping to contribute or pick up the other end of that conversation and say, oh, we, maybe we have something to offer here. And also like this emphasis on the medium made me go back to one of like earlier texts by Tim Ingold. And I'm going to quote where he wrote, things are active, not because they are imbued with agency, but because of the ways in which they are caught up in the currents of this life world. And there he's talking also about Gibson's notion of the medium and this kind of, again, entanglement. I'm then curious how the design, the second half of the title, operates. Is it then about, in your words, knowing how to engage with that world as bodies, as collectives? And in a way, I know that this is maybe kind of hard question, but how do we work, like how do we season this soup from within, if I may say so, because that's the kind of hardest part, I think. I wanted to put that word design also in in the center on the table to talk about, you know, an active engagement, but also to talk about design as a kind of knowing that is sometimes in scholarly circles disregarded. You know, we are in, I mean, I'm sure all of you all in your various universities recognize that knowledge is often only given authority if it has some kind of scientific or legal or quantifiable language. And in, as I was saying, in, in one of the anointed, you know, languages and design is treated as kind of a soft art for wishful thinkers or something like that, you know, very uh, treated like, you know, it's not measuring something. It's not coming up with a data proof. It's not coming up with a quantifiable outcome. And I, I want to talk about that, the bringing together of potentials between things is an, an extremely important practice. So it's kind of in league with someone like Michael Polanyi, you know, who is trying to, as a chemist and a, a, as a, and a polymath, trying to say, wait a minute, there's another kinds of, of knowledge, tacit knowledge, understandings that we should pay attention to as extremely important in culture. The same with someone like Gilbert Ryle, who would, you know, roar with laughter at his you know, Oxbridge colleagues who could only understand knowing that like knowing the right answer rather than the knowledge associated with knowing how, knowing how things unfold in over a temporal, over time and in sequence and in a physical world, the stupidity of trying to know that with many things in the world, you know, around which you can only know how. So I regret the subtitle of the book because of the way it sounds. If you haven't read the book and know that I'm talking about knowing how, which is not about knowing the right answer. It reads like knowing how to work on the world. Like, like here you have a self-help book, which will help you to know how to work. You know, that's not what I wanted, but you, you sometimes lose arguments with editors. <laughs> and it, uh, so that that's when I lost. Or maybe that also necessitates another kind of knowing how, which yeah. maybe you weren't equipped with at the time, but next time you know how. Next time. Yes, that's right. Right. 
So it's also a constant process of learning and this interplay kind of happens on many scales. And you've mentioned previously that you've come to architecture via theater. And that's why the interplay, the idea of the interplay was so important. And I'm guessing like that refers to theater, like a play is not only the script, but it's also not only the performance, but somehow there is something else that happens. And you mentioned interplay to be the real objective, the site or the ecology to work on the world. So I was wondering if you could unpack maybe through theater or not, but how that, in your mind, how the idea of interplay takes life. Well, I, I think that's all I have been doing in architecture is transposing a training in theater to architecture because my training in architecture was not very interesting. But a training in theater seemed to me to have a lot to do with what happened in the 20th century. And it was a practice where you were using action as the carrier of information. As you're saying, you know, the text is a hint to what the action is, but I might be saying, you know, come home, son, or something like that. But that's not the, what's conveying the information. It's whether I am groveling, whether I'm playing, as our theater people say in the cliche, uh, whether I'm playing to grovel or to reject. So I could be uh, saying to my son, come home, while rejecting him, you know, so There, you can play an action that's decoupled from what you're saying. So it's the way in which action is a carrier and arrangement interplay between things in any arrangement, whether it's static or doesn't have to be kinetic, you know, whether it's just the, the, the potentials that are performing even in, you know, like I tried to say at the beginning of the book, you know, this, this coffee cup, this chair, this table are in an interplay of potentials that is enacting something. And that is different from whatever may be said about it quite frequently for actors. It's, you know, for actors, it's like every day, they're up to their elbows with action as the stuff that you're making. And it almost always is decoupled from what you're saying. Well, I mean, is it really decoupled or does it have the potential to change meaning or change course or like, because there's also a script and I'm thinking also in relation to spatial practice and especially in like the earlier works, the kind of examples that you were investigating has this prescription or inscription to them. Then the society subscribes in the sense they repeat, they act as the script kind of suggests. And I'm taking this from like earlier work of Latour, where then he emphasizes description, like description to describe something is to kind of retrieve the script back from the situation. And I I always saw like the earlier books were really strong in doing that, like describing. And But one thing that Latour doesn't mention, and I think it's in this book, The Medium Design, is that the possibility of re-scribing or a rescription, which then tells the script or acts on the script in a different way. And that's how I always read somehow the entire play. Not so much about decoupling, but more about rescripting almost. Now, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot there, and I, and I shouldn't have maybe said almost always, but I would say it's routine that what when you have a script you're not assuming that people are saying what they mean you know they're they're falling in love with someone and saying i hate you you know or i give examples in the book of you know like richard the third and lady anne speaking sort of 
hateful things to each other, but taking on similar rhythms until they become enmeshed. You know, there's a, so again, it's the action as the carrier. But but your question was much more interesting um, because I too have looked and looked at the ways in which Latour uses those metaphors of theater as helpful to describe this imbroglio of um, of action between players and the position of the social scientist as someone who trying to make the script that pulls us out of that action. But I'm intrigued by what you're talking about or reinscribing. I hadn't thought of it that way, except that, you know, you're sometimes using the written word as another story, which you hope will, the story itself has an action, if it might be contagious or if it might be persuasive. Does the written word, apart from its lexical meaning, or it's, what it's lexically expressing, does it have another potential or action? I don't know if that's what you meant. I mean, not necessarily always the written word, but a kind of also the kind of invisible scripts or conventions or, you know, things that are meant to be done in a certain way and then in a way not questioning. And I thought medium design was calling to ways in which we can actually question it. But that may be my projection. I mean, I was a bit bummed when the book came out last year. I read it first and I've been working on like a very similar topology. <laughs> I've been working on a manuscript that employs like similar uh, sources, like different positions but I was focusing more on this idea of re-scripting. But there were so many kind of overlaps. I mean, I, of course, enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, that may be my kind of reading or converging my thoughts with your thoughts, but maybe that's how books work best as well. Maybe, yes. They do like the idea of, um, I'm just trying to develop it in this medium design book, um, not exactly like the sort of uptight scholarly reference, mm. but more like relays between thinkers. So it sounds like there's some kind of relay between what you're working on, which sounds very interesting. During our conversation series, the question of scale often pops up. And I think it's also worth exploring in response to medium design. It's obviously any spatial work operates through scales and has to be interscalar. But in our conversations, we often go back to the one-to-one -one scale. But also the, especially in the world and in the kind of examples that you touch on, at some points maybe gets like harder to deal with the limits of our reach and still feel a kind of worthwhile existence, so to say, as designers or as artists or as kind of actors. But I wondered about your take on scale. Like I, I'm aware that medium design is not a book that tells us how to do things, as you underlined clearly about the title. But nevertheless, I was kind of curious about how you also move through scales. And maybe we can tie that with the notion of skills, like from Alberti to industrial patterns. Design has been almost kind of always solutionist design, in your word, hand in hand with the skill of drawing. So I was also curious, like how medium design suggests what kind of toolbox maybe for to work with or also in relation to maybe scales and skills. I wish that, that the book had a more really a proper discussion of scale, those things that are scalable and those things that aren't. There are a lot of the things that I look at are scalable because they are part of this, you know, white enlightenment solutionist habit of mind, you know, that has elementary particles that then can be repeated and 
formulas and spatial products and so on. Um, I am looking at that phenomenon and wondering if there are ways to uh, reverse engineer it or use the sort of multiplier part of that that scalar gambit to to create counter contagions, things that piggyback on that, on those population effects and shift them in other directions, not to collude with those organizations, but to unwind them, short circuit them, uh, and so on, use their scalability. But, you know, I think that you, we all now are also thinking very differently about sort of planetary effects planetary organizations that do not scale. So while our enlightened mind is looking for the elementary particle that will repeat and command in a universal way, planetary thinking is not looking for the elementary particle or the universal, but for the it's understanding the patchy and the partial, the things that are impossible to parse with an elementary particle. But I hope that the idea of, of things that can be multiplied applies to both sort of habits of mind and that there that some of the multipliers might give sort of amplifying or compounding effects to a, a change, to a design change. That's very different from the way we ordinarily think of design, where, you know, I design this, this thing with the shape and outline and, and I'm done. I have created the enclosure. But this idea of medium design is also thinking about how while one might do something that is even at the one-to-one, that the one-to-one can be multiplied, not as the elementary particle, but but even as the patchy and the partial, but the nevertheless multiplied. I mean, the reason for at least hoping about that is, of course, a planetary crisis and wanting to be, on the one hand, designing in a way that is entangling, that is pushing things into greater entanglement, relinquishing the authorship of the sort of grand architect designer to another set of makers but I have been certainly, you know, criticized for speaking in that way when, you know, we're in the middle of a planetary crisis. Like, how can you just be talking about small little things on the side? Um, you know, I mean, there are some of my colleagues who would say now is the moment to, you know, marshal artificial intelligence to save the planet or something like that. Anyway, th- th- those are my thoughts about scale and I think they could have been more, could, could have been parsed in a more, make more distinctions between that idea. And I think in medium design, they mostly just, there's just the assumption that scale is greater effect. Mm, yeah. No, I mean, I'm always thinking of scale in multiple directions as well. It's not only kind of enlarging or going up or multiplying, but it can also be reducing to a controllable dimension or direction so it's always i think works in multiple vectors and not necessarily kind of linear as well maybe then like since you touched on this practice and kind of what the architect does or what kind of special practitioners do but i was also very curious about your teaching uh, because you have been a professor of architecture in an architecture school for a very long time and also in a way both like in the way in which you inhabit that institution and also in the way you kind of work with participants in that program? You know, one ends up being stuck in an institution sometimes, one that you don't like. I'm in one of those that I don't, I mean, the larger institution is conservative. 
but the students are wonderful. And so, yeah, I teach studio. And so that's, you know, many hours of designing all the time. And the kinds of things that we design are, you know, there's all kinds of studios. I don't know whether that's what you want to know. All kinds of studios to do with all kinds of things. I think what we are rehearsing is the design of something like active form or interplay, which turns out to be, you know, second nature to most good architects. Most good architects would already know how to do this would already recognize it. I mean, a slight shift at the beginning and then, oh, yes, because architects are already kind of correlative thinkers at their best, you know, people who are thinking about the interplay mixtures of potentials, kind of chemistry between potentials in arrangement. So students kind of take off in this way. You know, the experience I've had so far is that, I mean, if you were to look with kind of half-closed eyes at the what's on the wall or something like that, it's a lot of, you know, physical stuff from detail scale to regional scale documents that incorporate time sometimes, but also highly skilled documents, technically skilled documents. The other thing that, so there's precision. The other thing that they, that I'm hoping the studios rehearse is, you know, having already started your career, not being infantilized in some kind of atelier situation. So rehearsing what it's like to work outside of the profession. So all of the work we're doing is outside of a client-based profession. So given that that is very hard to do, it's also rehearsing the banging on doors, coalition making, partnership making that one would have to do in order to find that incredible relevance in culture and also, of course, be, you know, somehow sustained by it. So it's a lot of rehearsing of how to practice. So on the one hand, there seems to be lots of, let's say, projection in terms of materiality, how the spaces will look or buildings will look, but there's also a lot of scenario building or in a way scheming that will make this possible. I really, on the one hand, enjoy this kind of productive fictions in the university context, but most often when those participants move out of the school context, they often end up then being entangled again in the client base, whatever. And partly maybe that's because professors most often don't get into the nitty gritty of how to sustain such a practice or how that can be in a way like knowing how to run such a project or operate it or realize such a productive fiction. So I'm also curious, like, do you go into, let's say, alternative economies, other possibilities, how to build those alliances and things like that? Or it more depends on each individual's own interest? Yes, I am bored with the sort of little fairy tales about our architecture and what architecture might do and keeping our work at arm's length from activism and, you know, real physical changes. I want for my students to be able to sustain themselves as design activists on the ground, working, making real change. And so that's what we're rehearsing and rehearsing all the skills that are needed to do that 
um, either to make the connections one needs to make in the world. So, you know, for instance, a lot of the work is, you know, finding those interlocutors, speaking with them. It's been even more thrilling during the COVID time because people, you know, will talk to you more easily because it doesn't involve travel and all that stuff. So very intense engagement, you know, with activists and thinkers and policy makers, sometimes politicians, scientists, and, you know, for instance, you can see this on my website a little bit if there's any interest, but the most recent project was looking at alternative landholding organs and how to make something like the commons or how to transfer from abusive industries to more productive ones as a way of addressing whiteness, racism, policing, reparations, environmental catastrophe in the fat white middle of the U.S. Um, they, students also are rehearsing the kinds of political persuasions that are needed to do that, you know, to work in a red state. That sounds very interesting. I'd be curious to see, and we will for sure put a link on our episode notes to that part of the website. But maybe before we open up to questions, just to kind of continue on this track of like trying to visualize what it might look like, are there any existing practices, collectives, individuals, entities that you think are looking closer to what they are doing in response to, let's say, your take on this interplay and the overall interests of medium design? Are there any kind of existing bodies or collectives that do medium design or do something closer to it? Well, uh, I can't, you know, point to 12 individual practices or something like that, but it seems to me that the kinds of things we're talking about are now incredibly relevant in that they potentially feed a groundswell of thinking from indigenous, black feminist, abolitionist thinkers who are enacting the same kinds of changes their community work, through their community organizing, through community economies, through these different modes of holding land, different ways of organizing exchange, you know, thinking of J.K. Gibson Graham or Arturo Escobar or Miriam Macaba or Silvia Federici or people who whose work is inspiring all kinds of design change. It doesn't come within the architecture profession or profession, but all kinds of design change, which sometimes isn't taking full advantage of the spatial variables within that. So I see my work as in a way following that and trying to contribute spatial variables to that groundswell is a breathtaking moment in a way, you know, when you can almost sometimes hallucinate the last abusive 500 years of capitalizing, globalizing, colonizing, you can almost imagine it getting out of the way or somehow you can almost imagine diminishing the stranglehold it has on what would be, you know, the productivity of, of community economies. And so, yeah, of getting out of the way of the excessive productivity of community economies. So in a way, it's everywhere, but it's not like I can point to some practices with a name or something. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I mean, it's also maybe a process of getting used to the anonymity of such practice. But maybe since we mentioned now the community and the other variables, I have a few more questions, but I'll keep them. 
maybe if point comes i'll drop them but this might be a good moment to open up to questions or comments from our small community here today with us Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. Thank you both. This was very interesting and inspiring. Do you think the education of architecture embraced the concept of medium as much as it should be? And how could that be achieved? What are your observations on that as a fundamental parameter, maybe? What do you think about I think that it is not, you know, addressing it as much as it could. At the same time, it's not a thing, you know, it's not a term. It's not a, oh, now we're going to do medium design, you know, we're going to kill the last thing and do this one. It's something we already know how to do. It's something we've always been doing. It's not a new thing. It's maybe in some ways just a license to do more of what this thing we know how to do. I have noticed in students that when you just start thinking or when you give yourself license to think a little bit more this way, it's only an expansion of the repertoire. It's only often resulting in all kinds of precipitates, even conventional precipitates like buildings and details and so on. So it seems like it's just a, in a way, a slight shift in the habit of mind to permit that kind of imagination and give oneself a lot more opportunity to do things in the world besides being trapped in a cul-de-sac of the profession that's only waiting, you know, for sufficient somebody to get sufficient capital to commission you for something. I mean, it's an absurd use of the wonderful correlative thinking of designers. Hello. A proposal by you that you chose to build books rather than buildings. So like, could you unpack this proposal or do you think like rather than building buildings, like should there be another object to be built, like even if it's books? I don't remember saying that. Uh, I guess I did say at some point, or maybe I, I ended up being somebody who's making written word, but I also am making other things. Um, making other kinds of propositions and scenarios, proposals, all kinds of things like that. And yes, there's many, in my view, so many different sorts of organs for design besides the enclosure. And what is, is what is sort of cruel, I was saying, you know, bizarre that we should restrict it to that. Well, what's cruel about it in a weird way is that the world could really use a design imagination that can work on all kinds of things from how to, you know, rethink organizations of land to how to rethink small details. I can see that in my in my teaching. I'm often trying to teach like a large lecture class at Yale, which is, you know, filled with probably students who want to work for McKinsey or Deloitte or something like that. And I'm trying to kind of counter brainwash them to see the world differently. And I can see the designers in the room are the ones who who kind of know how to put things together. What's taught in other parts of the school are those are, you know, it's a language of, of spreadsheets and 
game theory and rational actors and reasoned proposals and quantifiable proofs and so on. And it's that design imagination is the one that that really the world could use right now in all kinds of decision-making, global decision-making at at every level in countless kinds of organs of design. I'm curious about one more thing. I'm thinking about Willem Flusser's etymology of design and this return to the trickster or getting sneakier in a way or scheming as design practice when design becomes scheming in all its connotations. How do we work out the positionality? I mean, how do we, when we look at practices in a sense, I'm aware that you are not necessarily looking at practices, but when we look at practices, like how do we decipher the positions or let's say sometimes the camouflage becomes like what you are trying to counteract? Yeah, well, I I think the position that I'm holding up is the design activist. And by activist, I'm also trying to expand the repertoire of what constitutes activism. You know, the, that activism is quite frequently and, and should be often oppositional because change doesn't happen, you know, without pressure. But I'm also trying to show the ways in which spatial variables in activism do potentially have another degree of stealth or sneakiness in that they are sometimes undeclared and that there are ways that you can use them to sometimes work under the radar or work with some degree of stealth, um, which then some people have mistakenly thought that do that is to somehow be politically equivocal or colluding or something like that. And I I reject that view of it. It's trying to see all the capacities of a spatial intervention that are different from a declarative one. And that's not taking anything away from a declarative one. It's actually proof that we're still in this kind of monistic enlightenment habit of mind that, that we still see, make a category mistake of of mistaking part for whole, there is no kind of activism that replaces the old activism or anything like that. It's just both and. It's just an expansion of an activist repertoire to include all kinds of both oppositional and sneakier temperaments as a way to outwit some political superbugs who work on temperament, who work on creating hatred and binaries and so on, and trying to figure out how to double cross them in ways that are sometimes undeclared rather than using declarations which they crave, which feed their hatred and rancor. So I I think that this may have gone in a different direction than you thought it would when you asked that question. No, no, that was actually exactly what I was asking, because when you refer to as stealth, what I said, I said camouflage, but stealth is maybe a better way. And I was trying to dig a little bit on like how you see those stealthy practices or the sneaker practices that partly learn from the superbug as well as in your words, then like I was kind of struggling with whether or not identifying them as agents of change or not. But yeah, you actually got straight to the core of the question. 
to work on these on these sort of stealthier things is not somehow, you know, just because you're not like banging a drum and making a very doctrinaire political declaration mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you that's not it's not somehow a, a lack of resolve, you know. <laughs> and it's been interesting to see the ways in which you still see the old en- enlightenment habit of mind as quite dominant in culture. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean it's it's been ingrained <laughs> all of us i think it's gonna take some time but i guess you refer to the analogy of the switch as a tool like to mobilize desire i think there are some things that returning to the toolbox question there are some kind of things that can still be identified in a way how to think about switches in the sense that change our understanding or perception or position even uh, with regards to the way things are and the way how things can be. And some of the design that, you know, obviously almost all of what we've been talking about is absolutely declarative, you know, is pointing out an injustice, is taking a side, is, you know, taking a very strong position with regard to political platforms and power players, often taking an oppositional side, but also, also knowing You know, being able to see that kind of temperament in organizations often gives you even more of a reason to fight because you see the ways in which people, you know, can destroy other cultures with, you know, as slow violence or structural violence. So it gives you even more reason to fight. At the same time, it also gives you sometimes a way to see how how to yeah double cross instead of throwing the punch. Like sometimes you don't want to square up against every weed in the field and shoot it with a shotgun. You want to change something in the soil that kills the weeds without them knowing, you know, like, and these are capacities of the kinds of spatial variables we're looking at, it seems to me. Thank you. You referred to this kind of act of shaping a little bit throughout the process and shaping not necessarily as kind of giving physical form or material form. And another binary that needs to be tackled, like space-time, I guess is form and content. And I always feel that they are actually not separable. But again, we fall back on our kind of Cartesian mind. Then we start thinking about form and content and like these uh, as kind of Uh, separate things but i think in like at least my let's say the lasting impression of medium design was also one of the things that remain with me is this in indivisibleness of form and content which is i think something to work towards more and also with that the written text is also a kind of form and in that sense there is also a formal dimension to your work, which I just wanted to address. Yes. I have been trying to make each of these books have a very particular active form themselves. The the way, in other words, just the way that the, the texts are arranged, it always gets flattened somehow in the publishing world. But I have long been working on kind of experimental forms for writing, you know, like from early nonlinear formats, media collections, other things like that. But the Enduring Innocence was meant to be kind of footnoted fiction. Extra Statecraft was meant to be something like a kind of two-part epoxy where you like you have evidentiary chapters and then contemplative chapters and somehow You know, you, if you put those two together, but I have a sense that people read it more like, I think certain people read the evidentiary chapters and then 
just couldn't figure out why the whole book wasn't like long form journalism. I, I don't know if people, if at, that really worked, you know, the kind of interplay between the types of text in, in there. And medium design too is trying to do, have a little interplay between two different kinds of text, some uh, more, some more evidentiary and, and then these kind of interludes, which we're looking at little puzzling things about activism where, I mean, things changed for seemingly mysterious reasons. And was there a way to learn something from that? Because they were changing not in a nominative register, but in an active register, in a dispositional register. And, and was there a way to expand the activist repertoire by learning from those moments? Again, I'm not sure whether that the form. Yeah, that is the form. I mean, that's definitely the form of the book. And I mean, thank you for like sharing candidly this uh, insight, because I think that's valuable to reflect on as well. And also like begs the question of another mode of practice of design, which is graphic design and editorial design, which I mean, again, you mentioned like the flattening effect of publishers, but still I'm imagining like at the hands of the right graphic designer, these could be. <laughs> I write fiction and the fiction that I write is the whole purpose of it is the pleasure of mixing different kinds of text. And it is going to take the right kind of graphic designer to design a book, which gives you that pleasure of really seeing different sorts of texts and being able to change from one flavor to another. Um, because if it, if it, if it goes, I mean, and, and, and everybody I know in publishing is very nice. I don't mean to say anything bad about publishing, but it, it's just a, the expectations of it, of, you know, parallel chapters, you know, novels, all these expected forms that I cannot fill those forms. All the more reason to invest in medium design. <laughs> cool, fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Keller. And I know you're like you weren't into so much giving exemplary practices, but if you have time, I would really recommend our episodes from our previous season with Katrin Bohm, who has a project called Company Drinks, which is also in close dialogue with J.K. Gibson Graham, the feminist economist. And they were even contributing to that project. So that would be really interesting. Oh, yes. And also maybe Jersey Seymour could be another episode to kind of think about how design can act otherwise. Yes. No, I'd be keen to see that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. Thank you so much. Same here. And so we've come to the end of another episode. I think it was a thought-provoking expansion to the written work of Keller Easterling because we got to hear how she thinks design and spatial practice can be orientated towards becoming an agent of change. Exploring other organs of design, knowing how to work with the world, building alliances, banging on doors, inventing economies are all but some of the tactics she professes. Tackling the planetary reality as a rather patchy and partial existence, instead of the discoverable and extractable uniformity as positioned by the modern scientific construct. Ahali Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprank Özer, with Darya Yıldız as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Arda Karaburçak with music by Groupses. This episode was also supported by a Moon and Stars project grant from the American Turkish Society. 
I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you for supporting us by subscribing, rating, following or simply letting a friend know. And perhaps that's the most important bit. This was a Highly Conversations with me, Jan Altai, and we hope to see you next time.